contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. I mean, I know he's only 14. Oh, he's 12. But see, if I was dyslexic, he'd be 21. I mean, it would be kind of cool if his first time I mean, if his first just sip of wine was at a Pearl Jam concert, it might be just something he remembered. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep that in mind, and then, and then I'm gonna check with one of the guys that works with, you know, like the accountant. I'm gonna make sure we start a, a fund in case he ends up in AA. We're gonna take care of him. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast happy belated halloween to all of you celebrating this week and taking your kids out for trick-or-treating remember at night let's go through their candy jar sure they wouldn't even notice it's all yours tell them randy from live on four legs said so anyway we are here today to follow up on our 2013 coverage that we started up on last week where we did the Hartford 2013 episode. And thank you for everybody that wrote in and telling us that they enjoyed the episode. That's very cool. It was obviously very important to get that out there. A lot of good stories. And now we got one that was two shows later, a little bit down south to go to Charlottesville, Virginia over here. So it's a place that they had never played before, a place that they haven't played since. And I always kind of love, you know, when they're in a new arena, when they're feeling pretty good about things. And I think this is a show where the band sort of looks at that and they say, hey, well, look, we're playing to a whole new audience here. So because of that, what can we bring to the table? Well, 35 songs, five minutes short of three hours, and every single album can come into play. That is going to whet an appetite for a show. However, there's some things to discuss in this one that maybe in hindsight 
maybe doesn't give this show the glitz and the glamour that you see on paper or maybe that you remember being there that night. But you'll have to just see and find out what all of that is. So Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar right there. Hello, hello. Hey. I remember reading along following the set list on this because I was going to see them the next night in Charlotte. So I was very curious as to like, obviously you want to know, like, what are they going to play? And as this went on and on, you kept seeing like those rarities pop up. This is a big one for rarities. All you rarities people get ready. A lot of people were calling this like an instant classic. They played a lot of songs. They busted out some things that hadn't been busted out in a long time. But that was all you heard was that they played a lot of songs and they played a bunch of stuff they hadn't played in a while. So we're going to dig in and see if that holds up. Yeah, that's kind of a storyline that just sort of spread all throughout 2013. You mentioned last week that these were billed as an evening with Pearl Jam, no openers, and they had the time to do pretty much whatever they wanted. And on top of that, they would come out at 8.30 and they would finish the night at 11.30. So they were breaking curfew in most places too. So they were taking advantage of everything they had and really spoiling everybody because it didn't really go down this way before this. Yeah, they would get to 30 songs on average, but like 35 is a lot. I mean, we've seen it. Yes, we've seen it before. It might be less common than you think or more common than you think from whatever direction and angle that you're looking at it in. But at this point in time, a lot of people could say it's like the dad Ed or dad Pearl Jam era and maybe the prime of that. And look, it's tough to disagree because you, you look at all the songs that they were throwing out. We did a long time ago an episode, I can't remember which one, but it was from this year, and we went through and talked about every song that had over a 100 shows since they had played it last, and I believe there were at least a dozen. So they were going back to the well with a lot of different stuff here, and I think that's what people take away from it. It's like, okay, we have been traveling, we have been watching the band, paying attention to what's going on for so long, and you're throwing out these songs that maybe if you weren't on the 2000 tour, if you weren't on the 96 tour or something like that, maybe you would have never seen these songs. So from that standpoint, you're giving the crowd what they want. However, it is an interesting discussion to throw out there here because you have sort of this juxtaposition of what they did then, and then you think of flash forward 10 years, a full decade, what they kind of do now. And we're going to kind of stay away from like, oh, well, that was then, this was now, and, and just really focus on how they were doing things and how they are doing things now and not just say, well, they're not doing it for a certain reason. But within 35 songs in three hours, you have to make some sacrifices here and there. You can't have a show that fully kind of forms and has this perfect balance where you're playing 19 songs in an hour and 25 minutes, less than 90 minutes a time. All of these songs are going to get bunched together, which, depending on who you are and depending on the scenario, I love when they go on runs. I will throw that out there. I love when they go on runs. You got to do it right, though. You got to do it right. And I think in this show, they do manage to do some things right. And then there's some things that are a little like, okay, 
why this and why the plan to do something like this and play it in this manner just to get the 19 in. Like, it felt in a way that this 19 could have easily been 17 and we could have seen more balance. Am I right by thinking that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never want to call songs at a Pearl Jam show filler, but I think what you mentioned about them never having played here before, wanting to represent everything, I think they erred on a little bit on the side of overkill here. And there are some things here that were added just to get that done. And maybe he wasn't as concerned about the flow and about the feel of the set here as much as he normally is. Because it's a little bloated, I think, and not just the main set, but the encores as well. Look, I don't want to make it so it's like, ah, well, a bummer to listen to this episode or anything like that. No, there's going to be a lot of good things to talk about, so don't worry about that. But it's just, I think, again, the way that they were doing it then, packing as much in as they can, and those were chaser years. Anytime that you went to one of these shows and got 35 songs, you were likely that you're crossing one or two of those off. It's very, very hard not to go to one of these if you had only been to like 20 or 30 shows and not see something for the first time. It's part of the business here. And now you have the 23, 24 around that, but also everything and every song feels like it can be highlighted a little bit more. It feels like it has its own nest almost where if you're not doing like the three or four in a row, then you're doing two right here and you can kind of remember that combo or they have to stop to take a break for a second so Ed can talk or whatever. And that's leading to him maybe telling more stories about a song and maybe implementing reasons why they're playing certain things, dedications or location reasons. But you get a little bit more time to understand why they're playing the song, which I love. And I'll always put story and theme before just numbers. It's weird saying that because I feel like that might be hypocritical for me to say in what I have thought in the past. But when you see something happening a different way and you react to it differently, you're kind of like, okay, well, now I can compare the both sides and now I have different feelings on it. And that must be what happens here. But... It's interesting to see the two different dynamics. And honestly, you pick a lot of bands out of a pile and maybe they aren't able to come up with two different ways to put a show together. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And it's interesting too, like going back to kind of what we've seen the last couple of years where they have shortened the shows. Like you said, you're getting 23, 24, 25 songs. It's kind of self-corrected. like, And a lot of people, like we talked about last week, a lot of people pine for these days where they were doing three hours and 35 shows. But this is kind of a taste of like they've shown that they can still bring that quality and give you memorable things. You're still going to get rarities. We saw, God, how many tour debuts per show this past year? Seven, eight, nine sometimes. We got and nine in this show. So. Exactly. Nine on the show here. Yeah, there's something to be said for that. I think they've corrected, I think, a little bit over the years and realized this is the best way that we can do what we do and make it sustainable. 35 songs a night is not sustainable. I would love to get 30 plus songs right now. Of course, everybody wants more and the desire to get more and to be and spend more time with them. That 
is all you can ask for when it comes to this. But when you get a compact two hours and 20 minutes with 24 or 25 songs and everything feels like it has a purpose instead of just things like, all right, this song, now this song, now this song, and they're just being played. That to me, that's where you succeed in this. Both are good for their own reasons. I feel like I've connected with the last two years a whole lot, but also kind of asked our social media followers what they thought were their favorite ways of intaking a show. Let's share a couple of those now because there's some interesting tidbits here. I'm going to start with Heidi. says, I say continue playing in the flow. Seeing Ed, Stone, and Jeff take the time to refresh Ed on how to play Habit in Austin would not have even been an option in a more rushed set to get songs in. And damn, that moment was priceless. On the Facebook community group, Ryan Winderlich says, I wasn't really a huge fan of the shorter sets at first, obviously, but... After this past tour, I actually like these sets. I feel like it makes the selections of songs interesting, and they can switch it up more. They still play two-plus hours, so it's all good to me. And yeah, I think that's kind of what we were saying. It's like a lot of people, when they first started doing, like in 2021, 2022, is like, oh, they're only doing 23, 24 songs. Like, oh, fuck that. They, who cares? Like, that's ah, dumb. But like, I think a lot of people have come around to like, okay, this works, and it still feels big, and there are still big moments in there. Better read one from Eddie Liston because this is actually really interesting. So it says, I was at State College and I was also at last year in Nashville, plus others before and in between. I'll take the shorter, more precise sets. For me, it's quality over quantity. Yes, State College was special, but some songs felt rushed and a lot of filler in there. That's a huge show right there. That's maybe oh, yeah. that and Randall's Island are the dawning of big, massive sets. That never end. You can listen yeah. to State College on plane rides and be done with the ride before you're done with the show. And it's interesting because a lot of people that have gone to that show, I can see, might have spawned more of the give us everything you got every single night. But in this scenario, it's it's the opposite. That's very interesting. Yeah, a lot of people actually on the group, I'm not going to read all these, but a lot of people said, hey, whatever makes it sustainable, whatever keeps them going for the next 10 years, for the next 15 years, that's what we want. So I think the attitude has changed a little bit. One last one from Gabe Spies says, since Matt joined the group 25 years ago, I wanted them to just slow down. Seriously, though, he says, I don't mind listening to these shorter sets. The song choices feel more impactful when the band knows they're only going to play 24 songs. And if shorter sets mean the band tours for an extra decade, I'm all for it. So I feel like we have to at least give one more to the more song side. I'm going to read. This is a short one from John Maloney. It says, more songs, like about two more. I love when Eddie talks, but sometimes it's way too much in between consecutive songs, and it kind of hurts the pacing. That's interesting. That's interesting that people see that as like a momentum killer almost. It has been at some points, but... Over these past couple of years, like there have been so many impactful speeches and so many important things. Like a lot of times, like we would do those reaction episodes, and a lot of times those were the most memorable things. Like the speeches, and it it made the songs better. I fully agree. That's kind of what I was saying before. Like, give me a story. Yeah. Give me a reason why I'm about to hear this, so I can have more of an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. You know, light years in Chicago. His aunt just passed away. They just went to her funeral. Like. Tie that in. But all right. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Yeah. 
And glad to hear everybody's thoughts. You'll obviously hear more of ours as we continue on this thing. Hopefully we won't come off as too much of a negative Nancy as you might expect us to, but it'll be fine. So obviously the show is always on our mind, but I think one of the reasons why we kind of pushed it up and saw this as an opportunity to use this is we're going to do a lot of 1993 for the next month. So get in one more 2013 after Hartford. And this was going to be the one that we were going to do. And this was also one that OG live on four legs listener and good friend Bradley Piasecki had thrown into the mix. So I told him, look, since it was your suggestion, you get to write up a story. We'll read it. And that's what we're going to do right now. The Charlottesville show will always hold a special place in my heart. Of all the shows I've been to, this may be my favorite of all of the quote-unquote regular tour shows, not including the ballpark shows, full album shows, and PJ20 type set lists that were more like events instead of just being in regular arenas. Part of me feels like I was lucky to even be there. With them not coming to the Midwest for the Lightning Bolt Tour, my options were somewhat limited. I have a buddy that lived in South Carolina at the time, so naturally, the Charlotte, North Carolina show is my first and second priority in the lottery. My brother lives in Massachusetts, so the two Worcester shows were next, and on a whim I put Charlottesville as my seventh choice. I figured if I was traveling to the Carolinas, why not throw my hat into the ring for Virginia as well? When the tickets were awarded, I ended up with Charlotte and Charlottesville. I was shocked to say the least. I ended up with reserved seats in the front row behind the pit, figured the demand from 10 Club must have been low for that show. But I guess no one told the band that as they came out with a purpose. As with most shows on this leg of the tour, they opened with my favorite song off the new album, which was Pendulum, before going into a more traditional opener. When they went from release into In My Tree, I knew I was in for something special. Over the course of the evening, the band just seemed like they were in a great mood, having tons of fun out there. I had heard rumors at the time that they had a special guest or two backstage. That's part of the reason why they were so excited and why some deep cuts were chosen, but I never found out for sure. No matter the reason, the band was on fire all night. And the fact that they didn't even feel the need to have even flow in the set to get everybody going. To me, that shows they knew that it was going to be a great night. I've long felt that shows without even flow tend to be pretty memorable as it's omitted for a reason. When I attend shows, I always hope for one or two things in the set. Number one, at least one original song I had never heard before, and number two, at least one song from each album. In recent years, it's been rare for my two wishes to come true despite attending some incredible shows, but on this night in October, every album was represented and I was treated to five personal debuts. Three from Lightning Bolt, and then deep cuts from Backspacer and Avocado, not to mention the cover, which I'm guessing is probably Little Wing. I've attended more than 20 shows since this one, but this was the last show I was at where both of my wishes were fulfilled. All of these factors combined made for one of the most memorable and fun shows I've ever attended. P.S. The crowd was great. Fans on Stone's side, fans on Mike's side. I guess you can say... There were great people on both sides. For Charlottesville, that makes a whole lot of sense. Thanks, Bradley. We appreciate that. Yeah, and thanks, hopefully, Bradley. good story. You guys got that throw in right there. That was pretty funny. <laughs> All right. Well, he mentioned Pendulum release in my tree. So let's get going with this. We've talked about Pendulum last week. Anytime you talk about 2013, it's going to come back. 
my thought for this one, and it kind of sets the tone for sort of sonically what their show was, or at least what the bootleg makes it out to be, is that you get to hear a lot from Jeff in this show. And it seems like that's the strength from very early on in Pendulum. The way that the song is constructed and put together, that he's almost like a running back and the ball handed to him while the rest of the band is the offensive lineman creating the holes for that bass to just travel and just run and sneak past like the pace of the song, if that makes any sense. Like I thought that Jeff had some really awesome moments in the show and we're gonna talk about him a little bit more when it comes to later. Oh, this is how you know it's fall, people. Randy switched over to the football metaphors, not the baseball metaphors. That's my um, one rare one for the season. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, like, last week's Pendulum was fantastic. And I thought this one was great, too. I don't remember all of these versions of Pendulum being this good back in 2013. Maybe it's just because they played it every night, but... They ran together, yeah. Yeah, but, like, going back and listening to these, man, it's just a great way to open the show. It's a great song. Like Bradley said, his favorite song on the new record. I agree. This song is shooting up my list for sure. I love listening to these. It's been great live. This is another great version of Pendulum. Yeah, Jeff, absolutely the standout. And not the last time we're going to talk about him, even in the next couple of minutes here. Well, release, I think, is a stoned conversation right here. And our good friend, old buddy, your guru, my guru, our guru, Javier, is going to talk a little bit in a second, but I'll tee him up on this. Release was fantastic from this show. And I think. A lot of the sound and a lot of just classic feel that release had and just that warmth that it has when you know that the song is just bringing its A-game. It comes from Stone, but he's using that hybrid acoustic electric sound on this, and it's creating a really jangly vibe to it. When otherwise, maybe you get something that's either a little cleaner or even something that has a little bit more like a wah, a little bit more of an echo sound effect sometimes. So let's ask Javier what he thought about how Stone is driving this with his awesome little jangle. John, hey everyone on the podcast for this week. So we're covering Charlottesville 2013. Awesome era. I think they sound great around this time. Release, fan favorite. I think everybody loves that song. It's just it's a beautiful sentimental tune. You can feel so many emotions and I include myself because it also it means a lot to me in a personal level. But let's go back to Stone. Stone around this time is practically obsessed with playing with his hands. He's actually using no picks whatsoever in a lot of shows. Like sometimes he was mixing stuff here and there, but the majority of the times during this era, he's not going to be using a guitar pick, only using the attack of his hands, index finger and thumb. Also, he was getting a lot of his less pulse with Bixby arms, the tremolo arm. So he was using that as an other extra element. Also, 
Stone has been well known to be a user of volume pedals. So you can swell stuff, you can overdrive your guitar, you can remove stuff out of the mix, etc. You can do a lot of stuff with that. Another song where you can hear this element is Daughter, for example, when he goes from that Fishman pickup that is going to make the guitar sound very acoustic and jangly to something that it has a little bit more fuss in, in the back. So for release, there's a pretty cool trick that you can do that he does it all the time. So if you have a volume pedal, remove maybe halfway through and then take a little bit of the volume knob only in the bridge pickup. So you're gonna remove that overdrive out of your mix. You're gonna remove a little bit of presence out of your Les Ball, but also you're gonna get a more clean and more like an acoustic ring to it. Because if you notice, that's how it sounds like. Now, if you add the, the fact that he's using his hands and not a pick, it adds another element. It's a less percussive string. So you're gonna have a little bit more sustain, it's gonna be more mellow, and it's gonna create this sense of like, you're kind of playing in an acoustic slash electric guitar at the same time. That's a good old trick. Guitar players, if you wanna try it at home, go ahead, let me know. But yeah, that's in the way that he's creating the sound over release and many other tricks that they were used around this era. All right, awesome. Thank you so much, Javier. You'll be back. You got a lot of stuff yeah. to talk about, so you'll be back. So, yeah, great stuff from Stone. Also got to mention, in Baltimore, they had talked about Lou Reed, and he had passed earlier that day or the day before, and they did a whole tribute to him there. And then when you hear in release, he says, Oh, dear Lou. Love that. Gives you chills. Obviously, you know, one of the more important musicians of our generation, and it's not the last time we'll hear about Lou Reed in their show. So very, very cool. Nice little trivia here. I agree. This is one of the standout performances of the night. Stones, his face at the end, just tells you everything you need to know, totally in the moment. And Ed sounds fantastic. Like, this is going to be a marathon for Ed, and he's going to be struggling by the end of it but he sounds really good on this early on. And I love, like you said, the classic feel of release. So In My Tree is coming off at number three, and that is not something that had happened yet. It's a tour debut, of course, but when you're thinking about the top three, Pendulum and Release are right in the wheelhouse, and maybe you go into a nothing man, an elderly woman, Something along those lines. Low Light was very popular this year. This was like the coming out party for Low Light in 2013, right. I really right. think. And then you get In My Tree, which I think is a perfect way to clue you in on what this show is going to be. Because they're telling you right from the start, it's like, okay, get ready. A lot of these songs, either you haven't heard in a whole lot of time, or you're hearing for the first time. And... It catches the crowd by surprise, and they're definitely like, whoa, where'd this come from? You can even tell, like, the band from very early on, there's a wide shot in the video, and, like, everybody is bouncing. Jeff is bouncing from place to place, and you see that, you remember that structure that was overhead? I called it, like, a bird nest sort of thing, but certain songs the nest would come down. Like maybe it was porch because of the orbs, but there were a couple other ones that to make it feel more intimate, they would push that down. And and they did for In My Tree, which I thought was really interesting. But I'm going to guess the way that I said Jeff, the way that you mentioned Jeff before, and because this is In My Tree, we're going to talk a little bit more about Jeff. 
Yeah, well, first off, I wish they had saved this for the next night so I would have gotten to see it. But the moment here, I think, is Jeff's solo at the end under what Mike is doing. I think that absolutely makes the song for me. He sounds totally locked in. And, like, there's some runs going on here that I haven't heard him do, if ever, in a long time. stuff loving my tree and you kind of mentioned that they didn't do it in charlotte and you wish you would have got it but the next they night went back to new orleans yeah mm-hmm. they, it they was it. yeah it was a request from steve gleason so how can you complain all right dig into corduroy then go then why go just like hartford you're using corduroy to greet the crowd open them up to what you want this show to be another good driving version with a ton of force behind it it sounded at points that mike kept playing back and forth with the solo but it just had this straightforward energy and just kept building but you can even tell even from corduroy ed does not have his best voice on this look they're playing a lot of dates very very close together they did Hartford on Friday, Sunday is Baltimore, and now this is this, and they were playing weeks and weeks before where they were doing back-to-back shows in Philly and Brooklyn, and middle of the tour, sometimes it does catch up to you, and once you get out there, you're like, shit, I don't quite have my fastball today, how do you make up for it? We'll kind of get into that as time goes on, but you can tell there's a little bit of breakage when he's going through some points in Corduroy. Well, I'm just glad the baseball references are back. No, there's going to be a moment later we're going to talk about. It. I think he blows his nose, and you're like, oh, okay, get a little bit under the weather here. But Corduroy is the moment, like we said, when the crowd gets involved, and you really hear, like Bradley said, this crowd really into it and going for it. But thing is, too, Mike, like going back to what Bradley said, there's no even flow here. There's no like anchor for Mike right in the middle of that set. They didn't even do like nothing as it seems or something to kind of make up for it. So this little group right here, Corduroy, go into why go is really the big Mike moment of the first set, and that's too early. I don't really have much of anything else from him in the main set here. That feels a little bit wrong. It feels like that should have been corrected, but Corduroy and Go, I thought, were really good. And Go into Why Go, I mean, there's no break there. Just the drums kick in right away. I talked to the last week about how even flow was like the fast even flow. This is a super fast Why Go, and I think you lose a little bit of the impact of Why Go when it's this fast. Yeah, there are some songs that I guess I don't mind being as fast, and there are going to be some songs that are played really fast in the set that I do mind. That's kind of a, a deal breaker for me. I go, I don't mind. I don't it's mind. Those, it's those ten songs. It doesn't feel like it fits. I guess, but go play it as fast as you can. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Get it up there, and. And I think what you said about why go following up on go, you can't just go do ba doom do do ba doom. You can't do that after following up on that energy. So right. I thought these three were very, very good and very high octane energy. And Mike 
was being pushed by Cameron at that end of go. That was fantastic. That might have been the best little piece of this trio right here. From some older songs to some newer songs, Lightning Bolt and Mind Your Manners, always going to be the combo, and that's where we're going to get at right here. And in the intro, Lightning Bolt, it says, good evening, we'll talk later, let me tell you a little story first. Lightning Bolt really does kill it in this era. The band was on top of it, and it sounded like they were electrifying with the song every single night. It was a great 2013 song. Whether or not it worked last year in 2022, that's something we talked about a lot. But even with Ed trying to push his voice in it, I didn't think that this one sounded too bad. So it didn't really bother me. But Mike, again, on that solo, just effortless. Just crushes the whole thing. And the band is able to elevate and make it soar. Mind Your Manners, pretty furious pace. But also kind of ranges a little bit from angsty to almost cartoonish at the end. I thought from the beginning and kind of how Ed was singing that we were going to get full angst, but we didn't. It's fired up, but I would have loved the 100% all in, all angry on this. Yeah, after Mind Your Manners is when Ed blows his nose, so probably the sinuses weren't letting him really go for it there, but I agree about Lightning Bolt. I think it's great up until you get to that solo jam, and then it just takes off. Like, that's really the part that makes the song for me is just gives you that feeling of like going back to 1992 when they would just like jam on stuff. They just feel content to just let that go for as long as Mike wants to take it. And I think that really made the song this year. Definitely. All right. Ed's going to stop here after eight songs last week. It was seven songs, but really a little more because Ed didn't really have much to say anyway. Wonder why. It says, good evening, look at us, just hanging out in Charlottesville like we've been here before. We've geared our set list for a more intelligent crowd. He says, I guess that's because there's a 13 and 10-year-old here in front of me, and they look smarter than me. These kids are going to be the storyline of the show, basically. The camera's on them, and it's like right in front of them, so you're able to kind of see their heads, and they barely perk above that rail, but... As we'll find out later, these kids are very well-traveled, so I'm sure they knew exactly what they were doing. They didn't mind that at all. But Ed says, we had a nice sound check. Thought this was a nice room and one where this could be one of those cozy enough places to play for a long time, make ourselves at home. And then tease up I Am Mine by saying, this one was written 12 years ago in a little hotel room in Virginia Beach. It was a rough time getting through a lot of things, withstanding tragic events, at the time, and it reminds me that this is the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy. There are times that we got to lean on each other and persevere, and then 12 years later, you can be back at a place like this and know everything is going to be okay. So I Am Mine will take you into Swallowed Hole, Faithful, but I think I Am Mine is definitely the story out of this bunch because it gets very intense, and it feels like Ed and Mike are locked in on some surreal plane on this. Ed doesn't lock in the same way that Mike and Stone 
lock in together or, or Stone and Jeff lock in together. Especially with Mike, sometimes he gets locked in with Stone a little more, but to get Ed and Mike on the same page and like locked in and feeding off each other sonically, like that felt like you got that from this version of I Mine, and that made this really kind of turn heads. Yeah, when you say Ed and Mike, I always go to present tense, like when they really kick in on present tense together, that can be really special. But this I Am Mine is a fantastic version, and if there was ever going to be a version, I say it every time, if there was ever going to be a version to let Mike loose right here in the middle of the set, in the even flow spot, this could have been easily a seven minute version of I Am Mine, like you're close to where the song was written, all the ingredients were there for this to be that version, and it's just not it's just never gonna happen so we have to be content with what we have and fantastic again this is another big moment for my kid for the little time that he has on it swallowed whole faithful back to back and then it's gonna be wishless sirens jeremy grievance glorified g they're all together here i love my runs as i mentioned before but this was a little bit of a lot now i'll actually start by saying this i like this version of swallowed whole this had the kind of confidence that maybe the band thought that this performance was going to have. And if they had done it like this, maybe like five or six more times, maybe in a perfect world, the crowd would have been like, yeah, we got this, but it just never happened. It's, as we mentioned before, the sequel to Unthought Known, in more ways than one. Obviously, there's some wordplay in there that makes sense for it, but it just never kind of came together as one that people gravitated towards. But this version showed you that it could have been a contender. Yeah. It's only the fourth performance. And to me, I was listening to it. I was like, wait, is lightning bolt still going? Like it's just lightning bolt. You hate to call a song forgettable, but I didn't even really notice it until it was halfway over. It just doesn't have anything to differentiate it from the title track, which was always going to be the featured one. Like, this is the 13th performance of Lightning Bolt and Mind Your Manners, only the fourth of Swallowed Hole, and that tells you everything you need to know. Only get 15 total. Right. It didn't stick. They knew what was going to stick. Well, Wishlist, I think, you know, Sirens is in the middle of this, and we'll have something to say on Sirens, but I think Wishlist and Jeremy both have to get this moment right here because this is everything that we were saying before you throw 19 songs in for less than 90 minutes and something needs to kind of go a little bit off kilter to make it all fit in and the sacrifices for this show were easily wishlist and jeremy that felt like they were sprinting into the distance for no reason at all this is one of the reasons why after a while of hearing Wishlist in this era, I said, this doesn't even sound like this anymore. It was too chuggy and riffy and went along way too fast to even feel what this song was. Like, when they're playing it now, that sounds really good. Yeah, it's come it a back. Times. Yeah. It's had a comeback, right. And that has felt like a version of Wishlist. And this just feels like they are putting another song in a set and seeing where it goes and it doesn't work from the standpoint yeah i have to agree i think like we talked about it on why go just a few minutes ago like you lose something from these songs again bradley was there you were in the audience you don't notice it as much but when you go back and listen and you 
dig in and you're listening to these songs, these versions stick out because you, you lose the impact of it. When you speed it up like this, it doesn't hit the same way that it should. And especially on those early songs, like I mentioned with Why Go, Jeremy's the same way. The 1992-1993 version of Jeremy hits so hard. This one, I mean, the crowd does their best. The crowd's going to take it at the end. It's going to be the big moment, but it's not what it should be at this time. And again, Jeremy's one that has come back a little bit too. They've let it be that big moment now that they don't rush through it. But this time, like 2012, 2013, 2014, this was the time where you were seeing everything played so fast. And these two are kind of the victims here. Jeremy is the big hit within all these songs that are right here. And as we mentioned, there is no even flow in this set. So you need to have like the big crowd moment that you would have from even flow. You need to have the big celebratory thing. And Jeremy is just kind of almost an afterthought because usually it could be a five minute song and they probably reduced it by a full minute. That's the way it sounded. It just went in and out. It didn't have any depth to it. It didn't milk in and cater to all those crowd moments. It zoomed right through, and I thought that that hurt the song, and it kind of hurt this part of the set, too, because, again, you see everything, and it's just bunched together. I don't think that any of these songs that we're talking about in this government is that any of them will come back for me in my top three because they didn't give them the moments to shine on it, you know? Yeah, but, and however, we got a vote Fugazi reference. So. <laughs> well, it starts off with Ed saying, you know, I'll take help on this one too. You can tell he's starting to struggle a little bit. The full voice is not there. And then I think he sees someone in the crowd. I don't know if it's a shirt, probably. Fugazi did make t shirts. I have a Fugazi t shirt that I got in high school, which I feel guilty about over the years. I didn't realize it was a, a bootleg Fugazi t shirt at the time, but I've thought about wearing it like if i'm ever in like the front row again because it's a guaranteed response right he's gonna do this because he sees he goes fugazi especially when you're in the virginia area exactly it was close to dc so i have thought about doing this but after hearing this knowing that it's already happened i will not good on this person for going for it all right well we got wishlist and jeremy out of the way but it's sandwiched in between the sirens and i think there is one pretty important thing that does happen here. We talk about versions of Sirens, especially from this year. We delved into it a little bit last week on how it just sounds so good from this era. Why don't they play it more in this day and age? It will still fit. It'll still relate to people. And this, to my knowledge, has to be the first time that they really do the extended outro. And it kind of comes about, seems like it's off the cuff because the song stops you have the crowd kind of applauding and then ed kind of plays with it a little bit he's like all right what do i have here
there's a part where he's considering stopping. Like he plays that last drum, like you think he was going to stop, but he sees the crowd is still invested. It's like, okay, no, I'll, I'll keep going. And he continues to strum a little bit more. And I think that this wasn't really a planned thing. I think that is kind of manifested based off of sort of Ed still feeling the song and not wanting it to go away afterwards. You know what I mean? I think the crowd probably had a lot to do with it, but I, I think that this was all natural. Yeah, it just kind of happened organically. I'm a big fan of that Sirens reprise, like give the crowd a moment with it, extend it, like kind of taking a new song and giving it some life here and kind of turn it into something. It's a shame that it hasn't come back. Like I still think this could be a really nice moment to get the crowd going at a moment like this. But just the fact that it seems to have happened organically makes it that much more special. All right, we're going to get into another portion here. And these are all going to be tour debuts from the next three. It's Grievance, Glorified G, The Fixer. Grievance is that first tour debut from this section, just kicking it off with a song that hadn't been played in over a calendar year. Only played three more times since, lucky enough to see it one of those times, but god damn, where was this for this tour? It sounds awesome, and look, unlike Jeremy, it's not played with that breakneck speed. It's able to be maintainable. It's interesting that they choose to rush on Jeremy, but keep this kind of open and keep this to where when Grievance hits, you can feel every single hit. And no, it's not going to be 2000 and 2003 where everything was charged and angry and politically driven. But the way that they put it together, I think, would be the perfect way going forward. If they decided that they wanted to do more of it during this era, this would have really worked. But it just wasn't in the cards. I don't know why, but this is one... It's Obama. Yeah, right. Nothing to be pissed off about, but give Cameron his due on this song. First time since release in Montre Corduroy, we've got a song here that's got some inspiration behind it. That's got a little bit of that kind of magic that they can pull off on stage. And this felt really good and really earned. Powerful. That's Cameron as well. Like you mentioned, he's the standout on this too. Just driving that beat with Jeff as well. And this was welcome right here because after that last run, I was kind of like, oh, here we go. But Grievance kind of pulls you back in a little bit. It's like, see here, we can still do this. And I mean, there is maybe a little point to it. Like we're getting late in the set. Does it feel like they? just had to throw something in from binaural maybe you're gonna get another binaural song encore so who knows but this should have been a more featured spot in the set now i have to because glorified g is going to be something that we hit javier on in a second but he did text me something about jeremy which i don't know if it makes sense for the song but he said that jeremy sounded really flat and he didn't think that jeff was playing a 12 string bass oh, on wow. jeremy hmm. which is very rare 
So I wonder yeah. if the speed sort of made that so he would not be able to do Can't it. Can't play a 12-string bass that fast. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, wow. sorry, Tom Peterson, but give it a shot, I suppose. The 12-string bass is not punk rock. Can't play it that fast. Right. So Glorify G is very interesting. Now, Glorify G is kind of going back to that pace. It's pretty fast. Whenever they would do it within this time period, it would be pretty fast. And also what doesn't make sense of it being played fast is what Mike has himself strapped to because he's playing literally the biggest Gretsch I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. From like 1948 rockabilly band. Oh my God. It looks like it's going to fucking eat. Like, oh my God, McCready's been eight. Like, what is he doing with that thing? So he, weird. He brings it back in one of the encore songs, like Sleight of Hand or Footsteps. I can't remember which one. But it's just a weird sight to see him lug this thing around that's as big as a true stand-up bass. Not the one that Jeff plays, but, like, the one yeah. that you play in, like, jazz bands and stuff like that. I mean, him and Jeff, you know, sitting down on the... I thought Reverend Horton Heat was going to come out and they were going to break out something, but... <laughs> Tiger Army, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but, like, it's it's just a weird juxtaposition to see him with his guitar and then Jeff, like, sitting down playing. It's very, very strange, but Bradley mentioned, like, it seemed like the band was having a good time and a good mood. Jeff, for all it's worth, smiling during this version, has seemed to have a great time. Ed's bouncing around. Seems like they're really into it, but... Just that was strange. Well, the guy that can kind of explain all of this, if if he can put it all together, is going to talk about it right now. So, Javier, why? Why, 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 why is he playing this? wondering there's a little bit of history behind this guitar so this guitar is also known as the Gretsch White Falcon specifically a G6136 T59 I know very long name very long code and all that stuff as you guys know Mike is a huge fan of 59 guitar so this is a 59 reissue it's not an original 59 it's a reissue so this guitar was born in 1954 under the need because there were a lot of musicians trying to replace their Gibson Super 400s. They wanted something that it was going to be a little louder and they wanted something that it was going to be able to create more sounds and to play more rock and roll. A lot of people associate this kind of guitar with country and rockability, some other type of music, but not specifically rock and roll or hard rock, right? What you guys didn't know though, that the White Falcon, the Gretsch, has a pickup called the Filtertron. Filtertron Gretsches are designed and they are voiced to emulate and to compete with what you find in a Gibson Les Paul, which is a hamburger. Therefore, it's really gonna drive the guitar. Like, you can really drive a Gretsch. I personally own a White Falcon and they're amazing guitars. You can really push the amps, you can really create that like super nice overdrive tones, 
but you still have that clarity in that twang because it's a full hollow body guitar. That is the main difference with that Gibson Les Paul. Now that combination with the upright bass, it is going to give you that tone that is going to be very rock and roll. It's going to be great for solos and also you have a tremolo arm as well, but it's not going to be overwhelming because sometimes the spots can be a little too much when you really push them and they get a little muddy at the end. And the upright bass is going to have a more sustained note. So that sustained note added to that drive that is coming from those filtertrons from that Gretsch guitar is going to create the perfect storm. So yeah, that's that. Javier will come back later for a version of whipping that really wasn't a version of whipping at all. So Fixer is at least an interesting talking point for like a second or two because you're thinking the big hit from Backspacer, will it translate? We've talked about this a lot. What songs translate from era to era, from album to album? And as we mentioned, Got Some last week, Got Some was transferring. Unthought No One was transferring. Just Breathe, the end a little bit. We'll see today. The end is brought up. But the Fixer did not quite make it that far this is considered a tour debut right here and you can tell it wasn't on their minds a whole lot ed forgets some lyrics and it seems like there is a sense of fatigue jeff is doing some backing vocals i don't know if he's unintentionally trying to be funny but he's doing these like yeah 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 yeah. this could go back to the good mood thing but like Mm -hmm. i don't know if he's just like ah fixer okay whatever i can do whatever in this it doesn't matter Yeah, i think there's a little bit of taking the piss out on it a little bit but this was the only time they played it all year and they've only done it three times since so fixer's basically done for all those times they put it in a set list the last two years Oh, it's been cut at least five times in the last two years. Right. It's sharing a bench spot with River Cross. Yep. Except it's got nothing to lug. All right. The last two songs from the set going to be Down, River Mirror, and really, like, Ed stops before the fixer to say, is everybody good? Does anybody need anything fixed? But that's it. There's no connection with the crowd, which in the encore, there's going to be tons It just needed some balance between the two where you're like, okay, there's no front-loaded, there's no back-loaded anything. Everything feels like it's cohesive. It just didn't have that. Now, Down starts with a little bit of commotion. Tough to see from the video. Ed starts the song but asks right away, is something wrong? A bunch of security guys over towards the front. It looks like they had to stop. I don't know. It looks more of a Fugazi show for a minute. When you're that close to DC, it has to channel Fugazi and stop the show and kick someone out. It is around the place he was looking at when he screamed Fugazi, so I wouldn't be surprised. But well, yeah, he does the he does the goodbye, the little hand motion like goodbye. Like yeah. his out. Like drops his hand like shoo, go away. You don't see any fight or anything like that, but you see yeah. a couple people kind of pointing and gesturing and, and, yeah, get that guy out of there sort of thing. So it says it's what we call a speed bump, and life is full of them. So the song restarts, everything is pretty fine, and then performance goes off without a hitch going into the closer, the 19th song of the night, Rearview Mirror. You can tell from the very beginning of this bridge that it's going to be a very guitar-heavy bridge on this, and it is Stone pushing it with a lot of cool little texture rips in this. As we kind of have seen in this era, the one that I remember when we did that New Orleans Voodoo Fest show, when we had Johnny Firecloud 
on the show. He talked a lot about that little improv of the I will forgive, I won't forget that they were doing a lot during this time. And that was just a really cool tie into Rearview Mirror. Kind of fits in to what the lyrics are and also almost in like a post heyday of Rearview Mirror can show you of where they were then and where they are now. It's kind of like the situation while it's passed by, he's not going to forget it and they're still going to play the song with that in mind yeah the forgive forget sometimes he'll just do a couple of lines but this is almost like a full improv of it it's just awesome this is a killer killer standout version of your premiere among many songs bash into an hour 25 and we got half of the show remaining so a lot more to get to but right now we're going to pause for station identification right before we get into the encore break talk a little bit about patrons and start off by thanking one let's thank brand new bonus leg member joining on the yearly tier drew torzuski say that 10 times fast thank you for becoming a patron and donating and joining us and if you want to be just like drew you can be you will get a lot of extra content if you join up over there you will also help out in all of our endeavors that we need funding for whether it be a tour whether it be our website everything helps 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 and again we just want to give as much back to you as humanly possible the things that we have upcoming on the horizon for Patreon, Indifference Evolution episode is being worked on right now. Hopefully middle of November, we'd be able to get that out to you. We're shooting for it. We're going to promise that it's on time this time. And also, we still got a gear garage from Javier. We're still working on the Do the Evolution one. So we're going to get that one out, hopefully pretty soon. I know he's been working really, really hard on it. So we can't wait to see what he has with that. Dakota Duvall, who we talked to a couple weeks ago, he has a profile episode. If it's not out now, it'll be out very, very shortly. And then we should be able to get out a late night series episode on the Conan show with Got Some at some point in the very, very short future. So a lot of things going on on Patreon. I haven't posted in a while. I posted a little bit this past week, but maybe I'll kind of get back into posting once a week and just kind of 
talking a little bit and writing because sometimes I can write and I can go on forever. So if you're over there, then at least kind of check in every now and again to see what's going on. And we'll give you hints on what's going on for the future as well. So if you want to join up to Patreon, there are three different tiers. You can join on the dollar leg bonus tier, and that will get you all of the content. And if you join on the yearly tier that Drew did, then you will save yourself $2 a year because it's only 10 bucks to join up for the bonus like for the whole entire year where if you were paying monthly, you have to pay a dollar a month, which is 12 bucks. So it's $2, but who the hell wants to spend two more dollars, right? Just save it. Throw it in the piggy bank. Even more than that, if you join the Gigaleg tier, you get an episode request And that's $5 a month. And if you want to join yearly on that, then it's only $50 instead of the 60 that it would be if you were paying monthly. So these are nice little discounts that we got going on here. I don't think a lot of other creators on Patreon do this very often. So we just want to at least make this affordable for you guys and make this worth it to go in and and get the content whenever you want. So it's all about kind of helping out a little bit, but as long as you guys are enjoying what we're doing, that that's all that matters to us. But you do get an episode request for joining up on the $5 gig leg tier and the $10 horizon leg tier as well, where not only will you get an episode request, but you'll get a profile on our website and you will get a profile episode. That should be a lot of fun. Just talking about your Pearl Jam fandom and whatever you want to talk about, whatever direction you want to take in that, that is where we're going to go with that. So all of these great things we're going to add to the Horizon Lake tier very, very shortly in some point in the, the future. Hopefully by the end of the year, we'll add like a little merch package to it or something like that. So if these are things that excite you, and of course, there will be more along the way as time goes on. Maybe after the time I move out of Connecticut, we'll get some more stuff going. But if you're interested you just go to patreon.com slash live on four legs or download the Patreon app and search live on four legs or go to live on four legs.com. See that orange button, click that orange button, become a patron. You mentioned live on four legs.com. If you haven't been there for a while, go check out the concertpedia. 2013 is the last full year that we've done. 2012 is coming very soon, but I want to shout out to Bradley who wrote the concertpedia review for the show. So you can go check that out and kind of relive 2013, 10 years later. All right. We got some more rock to go to, so let's go back to it. In the encore here, a lot of conversation is going to be had, so let's talk a little bit about it. There's going to be like a couple different directions, and at first we're going to start with whether or not you should have kids try alcohol for the first time at a Pearl Jam show. It is out with wine and says it's that part of the evening where if you're comfortable, we'll just start to make shit up off the top of our heads. It was that old saying, if you got the time, we got the beer, but if you got the time, then I got the wine. Then he looks at the young crowd members that he was talking to before, which he guessed it was 14. I think he's looking at the eldest, and the eldest is 12. But it said, hey, if I was dyslexic, he'd be 21. So it'd be kind of cool if his first time, just a sip of wine was at a Pearl Jam concert, might be something he'd remember. Now, I'm going to keep that in mind, and I'm going to check with one of the guys who works with the accountant. I'm going to start up a fund in case he ends up in AA, because we're going to take care of him. He starts going through a whole, like, role-play scenario as the parent. He plays out the whole scene. And mom and dad, I'm really fucking sorry I'm saying fucking in front of your kids that I'm about to... 
How was the show? Well, the singer kept saying fuck, and then he get my, got my kid drunk. And it was great. Oh, so you enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah, no, it was great, it was great. Oh, well, you want to go out for a beer later? No, no, I can't, I can't. You can't. No, I gotta, I gotta go accept my, uh, my Dad of the Year award. They're, they're giving it out tonight. Giving mom hers later. An award. Father, mother of the year, both of them. After all that, he's saying, we haven't played this one on tour yet because it's a really fucking depressing song. And mom and dad, I'm really sorry that I'm saying fuck in front of your kids. The end, thumbing my way. You know, recently he did this at the Ben Arroyo show accompanied by a string section. And I don't know if I was surprised at how many people came away from that being like the highlight from his Ben Arroyo show. But it seems like this song might be getting better with age for a lot of people. And I think it's one of those things as we grow older, you relate to some of the hardships that he talks about in the song, some of the insecurities that he speaks of. And I think that maybe as this was out while people were in their 30s, more approaching their 40s, and now they're in their 40s, approaching their 50s, and maybe even more into their 50s than we think, maybe this one resonates with them a little bit more now than they used to. It's like, where is that scale of Leash being on that whole other end where you can feel like you're 13 years old and relate right to Leash to where you're all the way on the other end of the spectrum and the end is now the song that you share the most in common with. This song, I heard him do it before Backspeaks would come out at a solo show. And I remember thinking, like you said, man, this is such a sad song. It really does kind of kill the momentum of a set. And we've talked about this before, too. And at a show like this, where you're doing all these songs and you're trying to, like, ride this wave, like, it's so weird to come out of an encore and do this. Like, it almost needs to be a different kind of show. And I don't even know what type of show that would be. But there are not many Pearl Jam shows where the end is going to fit right in and just keep the flow going like it takes me out of it every single time yeah getting better with age possibly but haven't done it many times to really give it a chance another one from backspacer that they realized early on like this is really not gonna work on a regular basis but i can't see this really like sitting and catching on with the crowd it's just so different from anything else they do yeah it is a little weird that the conversation before this was about underage drinking yeah and then this I get that wasn't the idea going into this, but still very odd. The tone's going to change a little bit. We're going to get Thumbing My Way, which is going to be the first version in 155 shows, not since November of 2006 that they had played it before this. That's amazing. It should not have lasted that long, seven years. That's disgusting. It's a dedication. I think this is the one where he says it's a dedication for Michael and doesn't say the last name because if your name is Michael, it could be for you too. 
here's my thing about this version. I got an A and I got a B. A, it's about time. B, it's the perfect time. The layout of how they were doing this encore sit-down was made for songs exactly like this. This is the one that Mike had the Gretsch again on, so thinking, and now he's sitting down with this big hunk of machinery here. And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking to myself, like, either they're really sound-checking it for the last couple nights and really working on it, or they picked it back up and found that magic again. But, oh my god. This was outstanding. Like everything that this song has and what it brought to the table in the years from 2003 through 2006 that they did it, focusing on the emotion and focusing on the builds and peaks and valleys of this song. It had every single bit of it. And sometimes when you have this long layoff of shows where a song is not played for a very long time, you're trying to get the basic aspect of it done in order to say, okay, we got through it, we did it, and now after that, since it worked, then you can focus on some of the intangibles. But this right here, right away, felt like they had every single intangible that has ever been inserted into this song. It gave you everything. No matter how cold the winter, there's a springtime ahead. I'm bombing my way back to here. Wish that I could hold you. So glad that I'm here. Thinking about. seven years going by without doing this at all and you do that bravo you guys fucking killed it oh yeah it's the highlight of this encore for sure and this is the one too i think that has really grown on me as i've gotten older when rydeck first came out i like the song for sure but this song me at 45 versus 25 thumbing my way is one that i gravitate a lot more to and it resonates a lot more now and yeah this version like i said outstanding it's really something special. Well, this encore is going to continue for quite a while. So we've got four more songs in this little sit-down mode, even though one of them they're standing up. I still consider it as part of it. So Almost like the beginning of a 2023 show. Yeah, I definitely said that Mother was the kick down the chairs sort of song. So Ed says that this next one is going to be sleight of hand about either getting out of college, not having a chance to go to college, or ending up with a job that's not the one that you want or one that you want to keep, and you'll do anything to get the hell out of there. Hopefully we live in a country where there are other jobs to be had. Sleight of hand was originally supposed to be fatal. So for 
the whole idea of rarities that they were throwing in on this night. Look, let's not call Sleight of Hand just some common song from an early 90s record. This is a pretty uncommon song to hear in any Pearl Jam situation, but it's interesting to see that Fatal got the boot for it, you know what I mean? Whenever you see Fatal on a set and it gets the X, that's a tough one looking back. Right, right. But Sleight of Hand's still great, and I love whenever he talks about this, because you wouldn't think of it as more like a kind of a working class song, but his explanations over the years, especially that binaural show in 2016, really brought it home. If Fatal's going to get cut for anything, I'd prefer it to be something like this. Yeah, the clip-on tie story is always one of the better ones. Absolutely. And before going into footsteps, it seems like Ed is grabbing the guitar And he's like, wait a minute, no, 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 I'm calling an audible right here. When you're sitting in the seats and you call an audible is much different than like, hey, band huddle, like, let's get together, let's change it up on the fly. So you're able to kind of hear it all come together as it's all happening and almost like he's inside baseball, like, I don't want to play this one. No, we're switching it around, we're switching it around. And we get footsteps before and both Sleight of hand and footsteps kind of fit more of a solemn identity, like kind of on the downtrodden side. The thing that makes me think of that is that after Ed does his harmonica part in the solo, usually right after that is where they're about to build back up into that chorus, but they take almost in the same way that they used to do this in the early 90s, where like Mike does a little bit, but it's sort of that down-tempo kind of bit, just kind of very downtrodden. And they kind of extend that for a little bit more before building back up. And even the build didn't seem like it had this triumphant, resilient moment in it. And I think we're just so used to that on Footsteps that I was just hoping for a little bit more drive and power on this version. And I don't know if it made it. That's Ed's voice. The fatigue is starting to sink in and he's starting to struggle. And that's one reason, again, you see the sit-down set extended a little bit is to give him a little chance to recover after the break before they get back into the quote-unquote rockers but he's not sounding great at this point he can't get that power behind his voice like he normally can well he's sure gonna talk a lot in between the songs here and this might be the last big time he's gonna talk but he's saying that's such a great piece of music you can always say that when you didn't write it that was good enough where i was allowed to write a song to it Chris Cornell wrote a song to it, and Andrew Wood wrote a song to it. So Jeff and Stone, they're the originals, and I can thank them for letting me write something. And then everybody gets to share a little drink after that. And then I guess he feels bad. He's like, well, now we got to thank Matt Cameron for playing in two great bands, and we could be one of those bands. So Cameron takes a swig. And then the attention diverts from the band members to the crowd. So he said, all right, you know what? This show might have changed direction here. Turn the cameras off. Let's take care of a little bit of business. He's going right for the 12-year-old. So he gives the bottle to Dad says, you can do whatever you want with this. And then jokes and said, you didn't know it was Gatorade, did you? Oh, wait, no, that was wine. No, it was the Gatorade. I think that is definitely avoiding any sort of lawsuit that could come from this. Sure, yeah. And it's not uncommon for the wine bottle to be Gatorade. I've heard that it's not a myth. He has had Gatorade and wine bottles before. Whether or not he has a wine bottle that is for Gatorade and then has a wine bottle for wine, that could be true too. But it's something that he has done on nights where he didn't quite have his voice as much. We'll never know the truth of whether the dad got wine or if he got Gatorade. I'm going to guess he probably got the wine. 
and whether or not he allowed the son to have a little sip. Going back to this, I always thought that the son had a sip. I don't know why. Maybe it's because my mind, I wanted it to happen or just expected it to happen. But yeah, yeah. So then he's going to shout out uh, surfer Kelly Slater and friend Rick, who's also a surfer. He's celebrating his 30th year anniversary with his wife, Margan. I've never heard that name before, Margan. Then he is kind of fiddling around. He's dedicating the song, but fiddles around. He's like, well, I forgot how to play music. And then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, yeah, there's another band member that I forgot to toast to and shout out and get a swig of wine. And that would be Boom who's going to start the song. So while they played the 19 songs in less than 90 minutes, it took them half an hour to play those first four before future days. And so goes Pearl Jam. Sitting at my desk and taking notes, I'm antsy. I want this show to get back into shape a little bit. They lasted a little bit too long on this encore, and Future Days should have been it. But even Mother, the Pink Floyd classic song that's going to follow up on that, I think just made it a little bit longer. Mother's cover, like, there's too much Pink Floyd already. They've done four or five of these. Like, I don't need another one. I love the song, but I agree. We've talked about Comfortably Numb and, and Mother a bunch of times. I think that they are better served as Pink Floyd songs, especially because there's not a lot of Pearl Jam that's thrown into these versions. They keep it very much to the original. And he has a very similar sort of style voice to Roger Waters. Like he is able to kind of create that tenor and it just doesn't feel like they bring anything that unique yeah, through Pink Floyd songs. It's, it's skippable for me. I like Pink Floyd though. I know you you're on the not. other side of the fence on that, but yeah. I do like Pink Floyd. So, all right, now let's get back into the set. Let's get to given to fly. And right when Give It a Fly hits, I'm like, oh, fucking thank God. And I liked what I heard, but I think I wanted to get more of the um, tempo stuff in. It's a quick ending encore set. All these songs happen really fast and all bunched together. But Given a Fly is probably the one that maybe defines this section. And Whipping's going to follow up on that, and Whipping is going to be a whole different story in itself, but I, I like this version of Give and Fly. This lost me a little bit. Like, it should be a big moment, but there's too much here, and it's sandwiched between all this other stuff. Like, this wasn't a big thing for me, and I love Give and Fly. One of my favorite songs of theirs, but this one lost me a little bit. And another one that felt like it didn't have the power, it should have been a bigger moment than it was, but I think you're getting band fatigue and audience fatigue by this point, and I think it loses a little bit. It is weird momentum. I will give it that. If whipping would have just been whipping after giving a fly, maybe it would have had more mm. of a standout moment, but this all gets lost together. So whipping happens, starts up, pretty charged up, sounds good. Ed's voice not perfect, but you know what? Everybody's having a good time. It's a nice little fast rocker, and again, it's a deflection from your future days and your sleight of hand songs. However, we get to the third go-around in this. Here's a baseball reference for all of you watching the World Series here that I have to bring up right now is that you all know that pitchers today, once they get to the third time in the batting order, they start to get that fatigue. They start to lose a little bit of that energy. So now we get to the third go around on the third verse and Ed gets that first don't need to push and he can't push it. He just sort of laughs it off yet keeps going. 
and kind of stops, yet keeps going and kind of goes back into the chorus. And then somewhere something happens and the band just says, abort mission. This is going to be one of the weirder times that we ask Javier what the hell happened here. But I think it's interesting to get his take on this because it's something completely different. Maybe he's hearing something that we're not hearing as to where the whole entire song went wrong. So let's see if he's got something interesting here. I'm on the edge of my seat. Okay, so... If you have ever heard this bootleg, like you notice that in whipping, it stops singing, right? I've tried to listen to the recording in multiple sources, like speakers, headphones, like those Atmos speakers that you can get too. And I think I figured out what happened. I think, A, one of the monitors blew up, and B, one of the two vamps blow up. One of the guitars gets a little thinner, when a tube amp blows up, you're still going to have the volume. It's just going to sound a little bit more crackly and thin. But I think it was Ed's monitor because when he says no need to push, if you really, really listen carefully, there's like a that you can hear right in the back. So I think that was that. Most likely the in-ear system monitor collapses. So yeah, that's your Easter egg for Halloween weekend. Happy Halloween, guys. Well, thank you, Javier. And I wish I could properly react to that, but I mean, what a weird moment. You know, I I get that sometimes songs need to be aborted, but that one, I don't know. And it almost seemed like, was Ed the only one in on the joke, you know? He looked so lost, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very weird. But moving forward, Ed mentioning the ocean, obviously mentioned a bunch of surfers a couple minutes before that, but he's saying there's more surfers in Virginia than most people would know. So we're going to get big wave, Matt Helbig. We're going to get big wave. And then we're going to get sad going in right afterwards. And big wave, interesting. I always kind of forget that the ending is what the ending is because the song kind of feels like you're riding on the ocean a little bit it has that very surf rock attitude of it and like the solo sounds very vibrant and kind of sounds like you should be on the waves and then at the end the band delves into something deep like deeper under the water and yet mike is doing a solo that feels like it could have should have been part of more the bubblier stuff i don't know if they're quite together on the same page i don't know if they're gelling on this it sounds like both parts are very good but i don't know if they both work together
I think there is a little bit of a hangover from whipping. There's it's a real awkward start to it. It takes them a little bit to kind of go and okay, now we're on. But yet that solo section goes on for so long. I think it's extended from the studio version. I don't remember the song going on for that long on it didn't. on Avocado. And it's such a weird choice for Mike to go, okay, this is the one that I want to take and do four extra measures of or eight extra measures, whatever it is. What Stone and Jeff and the rest of the band are doing underneath is awkward at best. And it's like another one that, again, hasn't been played very often. Yeah, just very, very weird. And it's a song that I always forget exists. Now, Sad is really interesting. I love this performance of Sad. However, playing it before Porch... Sad kind of like takes the same kind of tone as some of the faster stuff in the main set where let's run through it, let's get to what we need to get to to sort of end this in a way. If you threw this version of Sad up by where Swallowed Hole was following I Am Mine, this would have easily been a highlight of this night, even being played as fast as it was being played. Like, that didn't bother me of the song. I think what bothered me was that you just snap your fingers and it was done. Especially going right into porch, right out of big wave. Like you had no chance to savor sad at all. And that was really disappointing. But there's great moments in it. Ed is strumming the shit out of this. There's a point in the beginning of the song where Stone's guitar cuts out for like a bar or two and Jeff becomes a very prominent sound in, in the verse where you just don't get that out of Jeff on Sad before. So it's just another unique thing where Jeff is riding a little bit of a wave here where you're able to feel him within this set. And of course, when this song is good, it's Mike annihilating the solo too. And it should have gotten its own little highlight, but 29th song before Porch, it's really tough to make this one stand out amongst the rest. Yeah, and I remember a big kind of talking point after the show and one that I think really elevated the show for a lot of people was sad that a lot of people came away being like, I can't believe they played it. That was one of the best performances of the night. A song that people were coming around to, I mean, it's one that should have been a big hit for them. Yes, it needed a more spotlighted spot in the set to really hit. I don't think it really hits like it should have here, especially following up whipping a big wave into port is very strange, but... Yeah, sad again. Still one of the great performances of the night. Let's end this encore one and go right to porch. 
the swinging orbs, Mike, Jeff, jumping around, avoiding the orbs when they go by, maybe playing a little dodgeball, who knows. Look, Porch has played every single night, and basically in this spot, or the main set closer, Encore 1 or main set closer, wherever it is, and you know that it's highlighted because of the orbs, because that big bird's nest is coming down, and it's just one they're locked in on every single night. I don't want to say it's cut, copy, paste from what we did last week, but it's a very similar version. The antics are similar, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all, but how do you make a massive moment out of this for a whole entire tour? You do this every single night. So just like last week, Ed is on the orb getting to swing around and is swinging and singing the hey on that orb. I have something else to say, but I want to see if you have anything prior to what I'm going to say about this, because I, I might get into a fun little conversation right now. Okay. The only real thing I had on porch was Ed disappeared for a little while, and he is struggling to get to the end of the show and needs this break. And it's a credit to the band that they can notice that and be like, okay, we're going to step up and bring a really kind of epic instrumental performance on porch here. Well, Ed is struggling with his voice, but also when he gets off the orb, he face plants. He falls off. <laughs> right. Right. And it reminded me, there's a show, I don't know what channel it's on, but it, I mean, it's been like a show that's aired for like 25 years and all different sort of aspects. And I believe it's now called Wipeout, where you get these big structures in like oh, a... Yeah. Yeah, 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 like water or something like that. And you run through it's this obstacle double dare course. for adults. Yeah, it, 100%. Absolutely. And they always have little things where it's like, okay, we grab onto this, but then you got to jump onto the next thing. And then while jumping onto that thing, the whole premise is they make it so you're not supposed to make it. So it's like, ah, ha, ha, they face planted, they right. fell in the water. Right. And I guess the Americanized version of that, and I, I believe like John Cena hosts it now. Oh, so yeah, it was it was a Japanese thing, like Most Extreme Elimination Challenge or something. That's yeah, what that I want to talk great. about. Yeah, yeah. Oh my that god, show was that amazing. Show. As a 16 year old with nothing to do, I watched a lot of that show. Yeah, that show was great. Yeah, just because they would like I mean, make fun of them and like you oh, didn't yeah. know who was in on the joke, and it was just yeah, that was great. It was overdubbed. Right. It was the Japanese right. show overdubbed. And they took all these different shots. Like they had like these two hosts and they pretended and there would be points where the two hosts would be talking about like, Oh, have you ever tried like sewing something like the random conversations? And then like, there was a little bit where like the contestants would say something before running and getting mm -hmm. smacked with something. And they yeah. throw in like, I don't know. I, I went back and watched a clip. Little sheep, like it'd be something completely random. Exactly. Yeah, the yeah. one that I saw was I'm in math class, something like yeah. that. It just, and yeah. the, the like the challenges were ridiculous. It was like somebody's gonna die, like on this, this show. <laughs> yeah. Like it was very violent and very over the top. Run through a door and then make yeah. sure that you don't step in the coal fires. And but they made fun of it the whole time. Yeah. And it's one of those things. Like, does it translate well? 20 years later in spots yes and in spots no but mostly i would say it passes for anybody that's wondering right now it's like if mst3k was a game show that's exactly what this is all right second encore ed's gonna toast to everybody drinks a lot of wine 
and says, there's a few people that I noticed here that are holding up pictures of Lou Reed. And we've been thinking about him a lot for the last few days. So how about at the count of three, as loud as we can, we say, we love you, Lou. One, two, three. We love you, Lou! They really went for the Lou Reed tributes on the West Coast. And as this was wrapping up, they went back on the break and it worked out waiting for the man and all that stuff. And you saw a lot of that stuff on the West Coast leg. And it's starting up here. After Hours is maybe one of my favorite hours, like yeah. era-related covers that they've ever done. Just yeah. something really, really special and really, really sweet to hear Ed do. We're going to get the singles combo that's going to open up this Encore 2, Breath into State of Love and Trust. Jeff, another one on Breath. I thought Jeff sounded awesome. He just needs recognition for how good he sounds in this mix all Great night. Jeff show, yeah. The version sounds a little sludgy in spots, and it is probably a little bit because of Ed and probably a little bit of less familiarity with the band and played in a while, something like that. But you get to this moment where Ed has to do the, if I knew where it was, I would take you there. And he goes for it. He doesn't have a lot in the tank and he goes for it. about all that he has left after that yeah he's running completely on empty yeah and state of love and trust they do their best but you can tell he's visibly struggling to make it through the song and he knows it too like i feel for him it's kind of a helpless feeling when you're the singer and you can't do the thing that you want to do but yeah he just can't get through this and like the band is doing the best they can like jeff's having a great night mike is going to help out here at the end but Ed is done. At the very least, it seems like party atmosphere that right. you're putting these two songs. It's not like he's playing present tense or something like that. And sounds yeah, like, and like, and he's not going to get frustrated and walk off. That's what you do. Like he's going to play it up to the crowd. He's going to let the band have their moment. He's going to pick his spots. He does that very well, but you realize watching this in retrospect that he is done with the show. We got three more after this and alive. He at least he, he makes up for what he doesn't have with kind of being a showman here. And he gets up on the speakers, starts yeah. doing a little bit of the sermon and everybody's singing along and together. And he's conducting the thing. Yep. Mm-hmm, he's conducting the crowd. I don't know if you caught this. I don't know why this caught my eye. And I was like, what the fuck is this? There was a point in this world where people used iPads to like take video in places and stuff like that. Stuff was getting bigger. For right. Wow. Yeah. It's just weird to see it because, like, I don't think I take my iPad out of my house unless I'm going somewhere to stay for a week. You know what I mean? I don't think to take pictures with it. I just have a couple of things to read on it and a couple of games and stuff. They were pretty new at the time, right? iPads were relatively new. If not new, then, like, at least the technology still felt fresh. Yeah, newer version, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. Weird to see. Yeah, weird weird to see. I would not lug that around at a concert ever, especially if they were expensive at the time. So, All right, before getting to Baba and Little Wing, Ed greets the two kids, which, of course, he turned into alcoholics on this night, and everyone in the band walks over. They're on they the stage. They stagger up like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Big hugs yeah. and all that. 
Their names are Dane and Keith. And before he even mentions anything, I look at his shirt and I'm like, well, that's interesting. Okay. You read his shirt, and this is the older one. The older one's wearing a black shirt. The younger one is wearing a yellow shirt. And you're only made shirts. They made these. Mm -hmm. So the older one is wearing a shirt that says he saw Pearl Jam from the womb. And it seems like Virginia Beach in 2000 and then two shows that happened in 2000 at the Woodlands in Texas. So Ed acknowledges the shirt and says these guys knew every fucking word and then makes that joke because he was saying, oh, sorry, I said fuck every word to every song makes that joke. It says that it was a joy to play for you. And if you grew up listening to us, we'll at least have a crowd of two until we're 80 or 90 years old. And then this is what catches you by surprise because Ed turns the shirt around and on the back is all the shows that he attended. And it probably was right around the same amount that I had been to at the oh, time. It was around 12 or 13. Way more than me. Insane. Good for them. And yeah, I think now they're probably of age where they can drink. So this yeah, is they'd probably be 20. 22 and 20 now. Yeah. They're probably yeah. big Swifties by now. They probably rebelled against Pearl Jam. <laughs> they're, they're done. Well, look, this is a small community. So if anybody knows them, then have them write into the mystery machine live on for legs podcast at gmail.com. Fun. Glad that they got their moment and it looks like they got a wine bottle to take home with them souvenir. Maybe they stayed side stage because Ed gave somebody side stage a set list. Yeah. Them. yeah. I think then, that was probably them. And it's fun because like Jeff comes over and like takes a picture with them. Like they go on stones hanging out like they have like, a nice little moment on stage. You could tell they're super nervous at first, but then he makes them laugh and they loosen up a little bit. You know, I can't believe it took them this long to mention this because Ed goes over and says, oh, this is Led Zeppelin Arena, right? Oh, no, John Paul Jones. And then, of course, Mike is going to play a little Zeppelin. He plays both Over the Hills and Far Away and then Bring It On Home. Oh, no, I mean John Paul Jones. Take it, take But they aren't going to go into anything from Zeppelin. They're going to finish off <laughs> Baba. After, after all that, you're not getting it. Not even them crooked vultures. Come on. Yeah. So Baba's in the little wing. Everybody's having a blast during Baba. Everybody in the front row enjoying themselves. Ed calls out for tambourines, picks his people. And it looks like it's going to end. And even Ed says, I think we've done it all. But the reaction just gets louder and louder and louder. And I guess they couldn't just let him go without one more. So they're going to try something different. Ed's got a UVA jersey, football jersey that lays out on a speaker. And then they're going to get into a song that the last time they did it was in San Diego 2009. So after a big night of eight tour debuts, you're going to get one more. And I guess this is appropriate that you're going to get another tour debut because this song, as just a full song and not a tag or anything like this, this is the fourth out of five performances of Little Wing of all time. Well, she's walking through the clouds Where the sun is
thinking into your head like that inspiration that he's channeling here that gave us yellow lead better like you feel that while he's doing it you, you see jeff look over and he's kind of like smirking at him like oh this is what mike lives for right here this yeah, is his yeah. hendrix moment and he's not fooling anybody yeah exactly yeah i love little wing i love when they do the full version and maybe it's because it's few and far between there's only been five of them but like it always feels really fun and really organic like it almost feels like it's never planned. It's always just like, oh, yeah, let's just do it. Right. Which, which gives it that kind of quality. Like, it could disappear at any moment. It, you you got to grab onto it while you can, because they're never going to just choose to do it. Yeah. Love Little Wing. It's a great way to close the show. But, like, leave it that way. Like, I don't want it to be an every show kind of thing. Just leave it to these random places that it shows up at. It's probably in the same way, and I know that they played fucking up a lot, but we talked about that last week. In the same kind of fashion where everybody's going to remember that song for that show. Keep yeah. it as that. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Don't make it a whole tour type thing. All right, 35 songs out of the way right there. That was a long set. A lot that we got to talk about. Hey, I think we added a lot of positivity to it, so why not add a little bit more and share our top three modes from this show? Okay, I'm going to go with number three. I'm going to say It's Sad. While I don't love the spot that Sad was in, the performance more than made up for it. Like you mentioned, everybody was talking about Sad afterwards. I think it would have gotten more of a highlight, maybe to the point where we're actually like listening to this song and calling it one of the best versions of Sad outside of what this show is kind of deal. Like It could have been that. Number two, I'm saying release. This was a phenomenal version that had that all-time feel to it and a lot of the warmth, and Ed had it early. He had that song early, so it sounded really, really nice. And number one for me is Thumbing My Way because I don't think I ever would have expected to get that kind of version. I know I had listened to the show before a couple of times and heard this, but I don't know if I put two and two together that this was 155 shows before playing it again. Wow, play this every other night. Don't make it Little Wing, play this. Yeah, that's that's good. My number three is going to be The Kids. Not that, going with a song, huh? Yeah, I think that really gave the show a little bit of, it kind of grounded it a little bit and gave it something to hold on to. My number two, I agree with you, I think Release was fantastic, but my number one is going to be Rear View Mirror. Nothing wrong with that. All right. As we kind of tiptoe our way here to giving this a rating. Yeah, man, I didn't expect to feel this way out of this show. And I guess that's sort of what this job is sometimes, is that things just kind of come at you and either you're like, whoa, I love this. I can't believe I love this so much. Or, wow, I didn't know this show had this. And everything that we talked about tonight 
we knew the storyline of it being a lot of songs and playing for a lot of time and a lot of songs that they don't usually play in the set at that time. And that was the lore for the show. And even with myself at that time, I wasn't listening to a whole lot of shows that weren't my own. I went back to this. I did listen to it because I wanted to hear songs like glorified G and big wave and what they sounded like in this era. Cause it was just few and far between. And I wasn't going and having a, I don't think nugs existed in 2013, nor did I have a whole lot of bootlegs to go off of. So this was on YouTube. So I was able to, to listen to this. And now that you kind of listen and you kind of pay attention a little more and you listen to it in a different ear, it does take you away from what your original thought was when all that stuff in the middle is just jam packed together. And it feels like they're just trying to compact 19 songs into a space where 17 fits perfectly. And then to follow that up and only do four songs in the span of a half hour in the first encore really was not balanced in the proper way. And that threw me off. I thought most of the performances were pretty good. Fine. Ooh, I don't know. I, people are going to kill me for this. I am going to say 7.5 and I did not expect to give that before this show. I think if I were there, I'd probably give it a nine and a half. That's how much of a, a divide there is. I think I can definitely see why people that were at this show think very, very highly of it as a bootleg. And that's what we're going off of right here. The memories and kind of what we have, we can't go back and relive this show again from the standpoint of what they're doing on stage. So the best that we can do and the best that we can intake it is how we have it and how it's coming to our ears when we're sitting around at home or riding in a car or wherever. To me, I would give you a lot more to listen to from 2013 than I would give you Charlottesville. And that kind of pains for me to say. This is a tough one because its reputation kind of preceded it. And going in, you're like, oh, well, that's one of the best shows of that year. Obviously, played so many songs. There are so many rarities that were broken out. But you need more than that to make it a really memorable show. Like talking about like a bootleg that we're going to go back and listen to here now 10 years later. And I'm kind of in the same range. I mean, I think there is a nine and a half or a 10 show in there if you kind of sift through. but there's so much that was hard to get through and that just dragged on. I do think there's some really fantastic moments, so I'm going to give it an eight. Yeah, I was in between seven and a half and an eight, and yeah. I think it was just the balance that, that really threw me off. I do like a lot of the performances here, and had yeah. Ed been at full strength on this night, could have been sure. a lot higher. Sure. Okay, well, that is the end of our coverage for the Lightning Bolt Tour. It got the same amount of coverage as 2003 for Riot Act, the same amount of coverage as 1998 for Yield. So everything is balanced, right? Everything all works out. Okay, we, maybe we, it didn't got, get as much. We've got one more coming this year. Oh, yeah, we do. Yep. I forgot about that. Okay, yep. all right. Well, hang on, Lightning Bolt fans, because we're not done yet. How about that for a tease? But before. <laughs> We get to that, we got a whole month worth of 1993 versus coverage. And I'm excited because we've obviously covered every year and every era 
but there have been some years that we have sort of lacked on. And they're for different reasons. It could be because bootlegs are of all varying qualities. It could be because sometimes the storylines for those shows don't really pop out at you as much because they were so early. The set lists aren't that different. Night in, night out, they only got two albums to work off of. But I think now is the time to really kind of settle in and figure out what the 1993 tour was and where it stands in the history of this band. So we're going to do four straight weeks, starting with next week. We're going to do San Diego Night 2 from 1993. That was like the first week or so in that run. And that is actually a show. I'll talk about it more a little bit next week, but that's a show where around the time we started this podcast, I was listening to Sirius XM and I heard not the full show, but like a random song pop up. And it was actually the improv that happens at the mm-hmm. show. And so I was blown away by it. And from that point on, always in the back of my head, when are we going to do this? When are we going to talk about this? So after about four or five years, there you go. San Diego night two ninety three. next week. Thank you all for listening in. You all know the ordeal. If you listen to this show and you're not subscribed to us anywhere, then please subscribe to us over at Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Those are the big ones. If you got small ones you listen to us on, hey, subscribe over there too. And if they let you rate us, then please rate us. Hopefully we have earned the five stars. We have definitely done the research to put us up there and hopefully you guys see that in us that we have done the job to deserve that but on apple podcast you can also leave us a comment and as i always mention every week it's not just for us it is for the next person that is looking for a pearl jam show to listen to and it might be something from their deep past that they don't have any memory on or it might be something that they listen to constantly that they just want to hear another voice and opinion on so look Charlottesville, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to listen to this one, and maybe maybe we turn them on to what we think, and maybe they're just like, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, because we were there, you weren't there. Who knows? But that is the journey of this whole thing, is that we all come from totally different backgrounds and totally different approaches of how we listen to shows. That's why I asked that question before, and that's why we talked about it on what kind of shows everybody gravitates towards, whether it be over 30 songs, whether it be paced out and grooved out more. Everybody has their different type. This one was very, very specific and almost radicalized in its own type. But you know what? You cover it how you see it, and I think we got this one today. If you think that we did too, then please leave us a comment and rate us five stars and couldn't ask for much else more than that all right here's the goodbye song this may be the end we're here but not for much longer and although we may be parting ways miss you already miss you always all right let's start off 1993 coverage next week can't wait we'll be excited maybe we'll even talk a little bit about the time magazine oh i love time magazine don't you john they're all the rage and here's Terry Prudeau. She's a clown shoe resoler. You know what they say about clowns with big feet? Oh, yeah. Oh! Here's Rob Tussin. He was very impressive in the warm-ups. And... Oh! Oh, God, he's still going. Oh, how can he... Oh, he must be feeling really stupid. I don't think he's feeling anything from the neck down, Ken. Here's Kenny earlier this afternoon. I tested the wall first. It's pretty solid. Good thinking, Ken. Wow, 
Looks yeah. smart on you. For my homies. Oh. Yeah, fits good. It's kind of itchy, though. Let's Let's see how Kenny Blankenship does with the Boulder Dash suit. Ooh. Into the slit. Looks like you've got good mobility, Ken. Yeah, it's kind of itchy. I should have washed it first. Hey, let me get... well, bogged down there. Yeah, well, I had to kick that guy's ass. He wouldn't let me in. And then he trips me right here. Kenny, you don't seem to be really testing your suit. There you are. Now. Ah! I was screaming for dramatic effect. Well, I was moved by it. And here you are, ready to take on the second oh. boulder. Wow! Smoke in! <laughs> and this spirited young fellow is Avanche, much sought after fashion photographer. Oh. oh! He got bucked early. Yes, he did, Ken. Actually, that didn't count. We're going to let him get back up there. You know, models love this guy. He is known for his unrelenting positive attitude and his fanny pack full of amyl nitrates. Uh-oh. There he goes. Uh oh he's going down. I don't think he's going down, Ken. He's going into that little used side saddle ride. Oh. Oh, something's bothering him, I think. You learned that at a photo shoot at an Indian gaming casino, oh, and it didn't work for him here. He is bucked off, like you said. Oh, and he takes a full load from Herbie. He doesn't know whether to scream or smile.